1 Peter chapter 4. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them in the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Would you bow with me? Our Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that the word that we hold in our hands is inerrant, unwavering, unchanging, steady, reliable. It is a sword. It is a sword that reaches into the depths of our soul. It it can separate that which is ungodly from that which is godly. It, It is a sword that cuts to the quick and gives life at the same time. It is a discerning word, a life giving word, a transforming word. And our Father, we need that transformation of this word. And would you take this word that we are to hear this morning and would you, would you work transformation in our lives? Father, we, we dare not walk out of this room in the same condition in which we walked in. For we must be changed. We must be moved towards Christ-likeness. We we must be moved towards sanctification. We, we must be moved towards a greater likeness of the Savior who has redeemed us for life in glory. And so, Father, would you accomplish that this morning? Would you take this word that is inerrant and would you give me wisdom and accuracy and clarity with it so that we might be changed by it? We pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Ministry is a necessity for believers. Ministry and service of Christ are not optional. It is part of 
what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ to serve Him. Ministry is not the exception for the believer. Ministry is the norm for every believer, and it is always the norm for every believer. The types of ministries that we are involved in may change and morph because of developing gifts or a change in location or physical limitations, but but the fact of the necessity of ministry does not change for a believer. To be a believer is to be a minister. And with that, I do not mean to be a believer is to be a preacher, but by that I mean to be a believer is to be someone who is using his spiritual gifts in serving and ministering to and ministering in the body of Christ. In fact, this is one of the core values of the church that I serve, and I suspect it's a core value of one of your church of, of your church as well, whether it is stated as a core value or not. We believe in every member ministry. We, we believe in intentionally building relationships within the context of the church body so that every member of the church body is equipped to serve Christ and every member of the body is serving Christ. What's interesting is that in the Old Testament, just a very few select men were set aside for the purpose of the priesthood and for, and for the Levitical service of, of, Christ, of God in the temple. And, and fewer still of, of those who were set aside for temple ministry were allowed to go into the holy place and, and then once a year into the Holy of Holies. But in the New Testament, when Christ died on the cross, the temple curtain that separated the mass of the temple from the Holy of Holies was torn in two from top to bottom. God rending that temple, that temple curtain to allow access into the Holy of Holies. And with that, everything changed. Now all men could have access to the Father, and all men who are followers of Jesus Christ have been prepared and equipped and enabled to serve God. So previously, where there were just a select few who re- were reserved for formal ministry, now a veritable army of people has been set loose on the world through the church to serve the risen Savior. Listen to what Peter says earlier in this letter. 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And that is not a calling for pastors and Preachers alone, it is not a calling for elders alone. It is a calling for every believer in Jesus Christ. The question is not whether you will be a minister or not. You are a minister. In fact, this is, this is the theme of the, of the passage that I want to draw your attention to this morning. This simple statement, to be a believer is to be a minister. To be a believer is to be a minister. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a minister. And the passage before us this morning, I want to look specifically at verses 10 and 11 in 1 Peter chapter 4, will give us five marks of an effective person.
personal ministry. Five marks of an effective personal ministry. You are a minister for Christ if you are a believer of Christ. To be a believer of Christ is to be a minister. The question is, what kind of minister will you be? How will you serve? And our passage provides us with five marks for an effective personal ministry. The first is given to us at the beginning of verse 10, and it is this. You have been given a gift of grace. You have been given a gift of grace. Number one, you've been given a gift of grace. Now, notice the Apostle Peter says, as each one has received a spirit, excuse me, as each one has received a special gift. Peter is speaking about gifts, and he's not talking here about about natural gifts, but he's talking about spiritually given gifts that come to the believer at the time of, of salvation. We're talking about spiritual gifts. We're talking about supernatural gifts, gifts that are not natural to us. They're above us and come from on high, from God to us. They are uh, abilities that are an evidence of the Spirit of God that is working in the life of the believer. They are not dependent on natural ability. They're dependent on the supernatural ability of the Spirit that resides within us. So one who has the spiritual gift of teaching may not be a particularly gifted teacher in other areas, but when they open the book, now they are gifted. Now it compels people to say, now I understand. Someone who might be a judge in the real world might not actually have the gift of wisdom spiritually, though he is a judge in the natural world. These are supernatural spiritual gifts. And what's interesting is is the word that the Apostle Peter uses here. He says, as each one has received a gift. It is a grace gift. Now, the, the word grace in the New Testament, the Greek word for grace is the word charis. And the word that he uses here is charisma. You can hear the connection between those words. The word gift is related to the word grace. It, is, it means it is a gracious provision. It is a, a gift of grace. It is, it is a gift that is given that is undeserved. And the gift that he is talking here is about uh, talking about here is the gift that comes as a result of our salvation as an evidence of God's grace in our lives. It is the kind of gift that is spoken of in Romans chapter 12 that we read about earlier. It's the kind of gift that the Apostle Paul speaks about in Ephesians chapter 4. To each one, verse 7, is given a, is given grace, excuse me, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So we have received a grace gift according to God's measure of how he will pour that out in our lives. Now notice, notice what he says about these gifts of grace in verse 10. He says they are, at the end of the verse, they are a manifold grace of God. They are various. They are multicolored, if you will. They are variously colored. There are various hues to these gifts. They're, they're not only a variety of gifts, but they're shades in in the way they are applied to each individual. Some have more, some have less, some have a blending of multiple gifts together. And the Lord has woven this all together in a beautiful tapestry of colors to present to the church so that 
so that the church has exactly what it needs. These are, these are grace gifts. But friend, God is not a miserly giver. You have a gift, or you have a series of gifts, and it is given from God to you, as we're going to see at the end of this, for His glory, so that the church is built up and strengthened and equipped. I, I don't know always how to give good gifts. If, um, if any of you guys, maybe some of you guys can, can relate to me in that. Um, you think about your anniversary coming up, and for us, we just celebrated our 32nd anniversary, and so 32 years of giving gifts, and you, you, you run out of ideas after a while. Just, just a little honesty here. Christmas time, 32 Christmases together, 32 birthdays, and I'm just thinking creativity is difficult. But every once in a while, I get, I get this flash. And so a number of years ago, I was, I was walking through one of our favorite stores, Lowe's. And, um, and I walked into Lowe's, and I saw it right in front of me. There for about $100 was the perfect Christmas gift for my wife. It was, it was a yellow wagon that had, that had um, uh, sides that would fold down and have big tires that can go over lots of different terrain, and and she could haul all kinds of plants and things on it. I thought, this is perfect for my wife. And and so I bought it, I took it home, and I put it in the shed in in the back of our property, back of our yard, and and hid it away the day or two before Christmas and told her, don't go out to the shed. Christmas morning, she came out, and uh, we were unwrapping gifts, and the last gift that she opened for me, I said, you've got to go to the shed to get the gift. And so she walked out there, and that has been the single best $100 I've ever spent in my life. To love my wife is to know there is no better gift than a gift from Lowe's. There's no better gift that can, that can help her to plant and to play in the yard and, and to haul plants and to haul limbs and firewood. And, and that's, that's my wife. Every once in a while, you know, like once in 32 years, I get just the right gift. And that, that gift came from my knowledge of my wife. My friends, the gift our God has given to you comes from His knowledge of you. He has given you the perfect gift that you need, not only for you, but the perfect gift that you need in the context of this church body so that this church body will be more mature because of you and your gift in this body. God has given you a gift. One writer has said, no one, misses out on Christ's bounty. Everyone has a gift. You, my friend, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, not only have a gift, you have the perfect gift that you need for serving Him. And God has given you that gift to be used in the lives of others. Notice what He says in the middle of verse 10. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another. Now, isn't this God's way of turning the natural world on its head? When someone gives me a gift, I'm anticipating in a few days, in fact, I 
I went out with my wife yesterday and bought the gift that I'm going to get next Sunday on Father's Day with her. And I suspect my daughters might have something else for me. But when I get a gift, I get to use it. It's for me. So the cologne that I bought yesterday, I get to wear it and I'm not sharing it. But, but God's gift that he gives us isn't for us. The gift that he gives us is for us to share. The gift that he gives us is for us to invest in others. So, so my gift isn't really for me. My gift is for you. But the good news for me is all y'all's gifts, they're for me. Right? This is, this is God's way of, of turning the world on its head. He, he gives us gifts for serving others. I like what Paul Tripp says in his outstanding book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. He says, biblical personal responsibility, think ministry, biblical personal ministry must not be reduced to a set of principles to live by. Its central focus is the Redeemer who rescues people from the power of sin and progressively eradicates its presence from their lives. Listen, we are simply agents of this grace. Our goal is to help people understand it and follow where it leads while they wait for their Redeemer's return. Friends, we are, we are talking about the marks of a minister. We're talking about our, our personal ministry and how God uses us personally in the body of Christ. And the first mark that we find is that, that, is that we all as believers in Jesus Christ have a gift. Every believer has a gift. Every believer is a minister. He may not be paid. He may not have a formal ministry within the church body, but he is a minister and a servant of God. You are God's serving minister, and you have a personal ministry. And I, I suspect, knowing your pastor, that most of you already see yourselves in that way. There is a second mark of an effective ministry. It is given to us in the middle of verse 10, a second mark of an effective ministry, and that is you have been graced for personal ministry. You have been graced for personal ministry. Notice what he says in the middle of verse 10. You've received a special gift. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards. So the gifts that we have received should be employed. They should be practiced. They should be used. Every member of the body has a gift and every member should employ that gift. Every member should be dispensing that gift. Every minister should be looking for an opportunity to pour out and use and administer his gift in the lives of others. There should be no stagnant gifts. That's why the Apostle Paul says what he does, for instance, in Romans 12, verse 3. The grace given to me, I say to everyone, not to think more highly of himself as he ought to think, but everyone ought to think as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For we have many members in one body, and all the members don't have the same function. So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each is to exercise them accordingly. And then he lists how they're to be used. So we all have gifts. And the picture is everyone uses 
the gifts. In fact, Paul will play out there, not just in Romans 12, but in 1 Corinthians 12 as well. He will demonstrate that when we don't use our gifts, the gifts that God has entrusted to us, then the church body suffers. And, and if we don't use the gift, it's not, that, it's not that we are hurt by that, but it impacts the body, and the body doesn't function as well because we don't use our gifts. So we have received gifts, and Peter says we should employ those gifts. We should use those gifts, and we should employ them and use them in a particular way. We should employ them in the way that we have received them. Notice what he says at the beginning of verse 10. As each one has received a gift. In the way that you have received the gift, you are to employ it in that way. And the question then is, well, how have we received that gift? And, and Peter says there's two ways that we have received the gift. We have received the gift by grace. It is a grace gift. We have received a gift from God that we don't deserve, and we need to use our gifts graciously. We should use our gifts lavishly. We should not be miserly with our gift. We shouldn't withhold the gift and say, there's only so much teaching in this bottle, and then I'm done, and so I've got to be very careful in the way I dispense it. Now, that's true about my cologne bottle. It has like 100 milliliters of fluid, and that's it. When it's gone, it's gone. But that is not so with the spiritual gift that you've been given. You have been given lavishly, abundantly, extensively. And, and, and Peter says, don't withhold the use of the gift. Use it with lavishness. You should also use your gift, secondly, he says, as a stewardship. Notice what he says in the middle. Employ it in serving one another as a good steward, as good stewards. Now, a steward was a slave who was in charge of the household, right? So, so he's in the household, but he doesn't own the household. The income that comes in, it's not his. Now, he's a manager of that income, but it's not his. And he is simply to distribute the wages and the food and care for the members of the household in accordance with the instructions that he has been given by the masters. He's entrusted to disperse something that was not his to those who have need of it. What, it. what he gives away doesn't belong to him. And friends, we are to use our spiritual gifts in the same way. They ultimately don't belong to me. They belong to the Lord. And he has simply entrusted that gift to me for a, a period of time so that I might dispense it and use it in the lives of others so that they are cared for. And because we have gifts... We need to find a way to use our spiritual gifts. And friends, we use our spiritual gifts not in places, but with people. Our spiritual gifts are given to us to minister to people. Ministry is not programs. Ministry is not buildings. It's not jobs. It's not vocations. It is being with and serving people. People are not an impediment to our ministry. People are our ministry. And a long time ago, back in the dark ages, when I first became a pastor, that was a real struggle for me. Because I remember people coming into my office and there was no secretary to say, I'm sorry, he's busy and he's, stud he's studying and you can't see him right now. There was one door in and, and everybody had a key and, 
and, and whoever came in the building was liable to come and knock on my door and say, I need some help. Can you help me find the Bible that my kid left in the pew on Sunday morning? Or can you, you know, whatever, whatever. And I used to see that as an impediment. God's in, interrupting me and, and I'm being distracted away from the work of the ministry. No, friend. People are a ministry. God's put us in the lives of individuals so that we might serve them and care for them and, and minister to them. And, and what we minister to them specifically is this book. The work of the ministry is around this book. The work of the ministry is, is taking, taking the Scriptures and working them into the lives of the people around us. And friends, this isn't just ministry. It's what we call at our church discipleship, and it's what we call discipleship counseling. And, and, and people, when they hear that word counseling, they go, oh, you know, somebody's got to go see the pastor. He needs real help. Listen, when people come to my church, they're coming in and out of my office all week long. Nobody bats an eye. Why? Because we all need help. We all need help. We, we all need, we all get to places in our lives where we're stuck and we struggle. There was a, there was a season, there have been multiple seasons, but there was in, in, in the life of Regine and myself, and one season in particular, we were struggling not with conflict between us, but with conflict with someone else, and we needed help. We couldn't see straight. We didn't know, how do, we, how do we handle these things? And so we went to a trusted group of friends and we said, help us to see what we need. In a sense, the pastor was going to the pastor's office because he needed help. Brothers and sisters, that's, that is life. And, and the joy of this kind of ministry, of counseling and, and discipling with particular emphases in particular areas of our life. And frankly, that's just what we call counseling. Counseling is simply discipleship with a purpose. So it's a particular purpose, a particular need at a particular time in life. That's all counseling is. Helping someone to walk with Christ in the midst of a crisis. And, um, and the beautiful thing about this is that God has given us exactly what we need in order to counsel and minister and serve and disciple and equip others. Keep your finger in 1 Peter chapter 4 and turn with me to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. The Apostle Paul is reminding in chapter 15 about the beauty of how the Gentiles have been grafted into the church, um, grafted into the promises that were given to Israel, and given the privilege of salvation. And he says, notice verse 13, Now may the God of hope, he's speaking about the Gentiles, may the God of hope fill you, Gentiles, with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I want you to know what God has given you in hope so that you can serve Him. And then notice what He says in verse 14. 
and concerning you, my brothers, you, you redeemed people, you sanctified church, you, you people who have come to trust in Jesus Christ, and concerning you, my brothers, I myself also am convinced that you yourself are full of goodness. Now, just stop there for a minute. Are you full of goodness? Yes or no? Help me. Are you full of goodness? No? Well, there's, there's a young man who says no, and his mother's affirming. <laughs> if you're a believer in Christ, are you full of goodness? Yes and no, right? There's a sense in what they're, they're both true, right? Are you full of your own goodness? Absolutely not. Are you full of the goodness of Christ? Yes. Christ has imputed to you the fullness of all his obedience to the law. He lived a life that you and I could never live. And when he died on the cross and my sin was imputed to him, his righteousness in faith has been imputed to me. All of his righteousness. And I, not on my own merit or my own accomplishment, I am filled with that goodness of Christ. And Paul wants the Roman believers to know You are full of goodness. Your life is saturated with the goodness of God, the righteousness of Christ, and you are filled with all knowledge. Stop there. Are are you full of all knowledge? If you have a teenager in your home, your teenager will answer for you and say, yes, I am, but you, parent, are not, right? I think it was Twain that said he... He, when he was 14 years old, he didn't understand how his father could be so incredibly stupid. And by the time he was 18, he didn't realize how, much of, how his father could have learned so much in four years. Right? So, are you filled with all knowledge? No. I'm not filled with all knowledge. Ah. But if I'm in Christ, and I have his word, and I have his word in me, I have all knowledge at my disposal. And then notice what he says. I'm convinced you're full of all goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. This is a a word you may have heard. Nutheteo, it's a word from which we get our word nuthetic, as in nuthetic counseling or biblical counseling. It's a word to admonish, to exhort, to compel to call to obedience. And notice what the Apostle Paul is saying. It's, it's the word that we frankly use for, for counseling, for, for biblical counseling. And notice that he says, I myself am convinced that you yourselves, all of you, if he, if he would have known good Texan, he would have said, I am convinced that, that all y'all, not just y'all, but all y'all, are full of goodness. And you are able to carry out this ministry of admonishing one another, of caring for one another, of discipling one another. That same word for admonishment is used in a passage that you are well familiar with. Ephesians chapter 6, fathers do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and nutheteo of the Lord. The admonishment of the Lord. You, you have a task, dad to admonish, guide, direct, compel, counsel your children. And you know what? Everything you need to do with your children, you have been given access to in this book. The same word is also used in 
Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, we proclaim Him, speaking about Christ, we proclaim Him admonishing Nuthateo, admonishing, counseling, encouraging, exhorting, compelling every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, all my wisdom? No, all Christ's wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. We have been given gifts and we have been given ability in Christ so that every man in the body of the church can be made mature and made complete in Christ. Friends, this is, this is a long way of simply saying we not only all have opportunity to counsel, but we are all counselors. If you are alive and breathing, you're a counselor. You say, well, no, 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 I'm no, I'm not a counselor. Oh, yes, you, yes, you are. Now, you may not have an office. You may not have a desk. You may not have a secretary giving you appointments. You may not be receiving funds for it. Uh, my counseling, I don't receive funds for it either. I, um, I, I, I do it in the same way that I have received the gift of God's grace in my life, and we dispense it with grace. We give it freely. But, but you are a counselor. All of you are counselors. If you're a mom, you are dispensing admonition on a regular basis, right? You have a two-year-old, you're a counselor. If you're a dad, you're a counselor. If you're an employer, you're a counselor. My suspicion is is that when you leave here this morning, you're going to get out into the foyer in the back here, and you're going to be talking with people, or you're going to make your way out to the parking lot, and and somebody somewhere is going to say, I am really struggling well, what to do about with my teenager? Oh, well, tell me, tell me what's going on. Well, um, we've got this situation, and he's got this girlfriend, and we're not sure about the relationship, and we're just not sure what to do. And, and you're going to give a piece of counsel in that moment. You're going to send him to a book to read. You're going to give him a verse to read. You're going you're to pray with him in some way. You're going to dispense counsel. Friends, all of us are counselors. The question simply is, Are we biblical counselors? Are are we using the word to lead and shape and direct people so that they are walking with Jesus Christ? You and I, my friends, need to be individually involved in the lives of other individuals, whether it's part of a program or not. We, we We need to be shepherding, discipling, gracing others with our personal ministry and Peter next says that the third mark of our effective ministry is that we speak the word in our personal ministry. We speak the word in our personal ministry. Notice verse 11. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Now, now Peter is one of the places where we find a list of spiritual gifts in the New Testament. If you don't know where the lists are, they're in four primary passages. If you remember the numbers 4 and 12, you remember where they are. It's in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. And if you take all of those lists and put them together, there are about roughly 18 gifts that have been identified by the New Testament writers. But Paul, excuse me, Peter takes those 18 gifts and he divides them into two gifts. Notice what he says, verse 11, he who speaks... So he talks about speaking gifts. And in the middle of the verse, he says, whoever serves, he talks about serving gifts. And so there are two kinds of gifts, according to the Apostle Peter. There are speaking gifts and there are serving gifts. 
And he says, whenever you have a speaking gift, a, a gift like teaching or exhorting or evangelism or, or encouraging, you are to speak. And the question is, when you have that kind of gift, how do you speak? Notice what he says. If you have that kind of gift, you are to speak as one who is speaking the utterances of God. The, the, the person should be speaking should be conscious that what he says is God's message for that moment. Now, he's not, he's not thinking, oh, God's speaking to me in some kind of mystical way. No, he's taking the book where God has already spoken and he is administering something from that book into that person's life. He, he speaks what has been revealed in Scripture. This is why the Apostle Paul says what he does in Colossians chapter 3, He says in verse 16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. This this word should live with you in a rich way. To which I, every time I read that passage, I ask myself the question, Terry, is the word of Christ rich in your life or is it impoverished in your life? And too often, We are living in spiritual poverty in relationship to the Word of God. But then notice what he says, when the Word of Christ richly dwells within us, we with all wisdom teach and admonish, counsel, disciple, exhort. We with all wisdom teach and admonish one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So the Word of Christ richly dwells in me and it pours through me so that I can... admonish and encourage and compel someone. Let me just give you a practical way that this works out. About a month ago, maybe six weeks ago, a lady in our church called me. They, she and her husband have been in a very difficult parenting kind of situation. They, their daughter uh, was killed in a very tragic accident a number of years ago, and they have taken over the care of her daughter, their granddaughter, and it has proven to be a tremendously difficult circumstance. And so she was driving to school. She got a report from the private school where the daughter is, the granddaughter is, and and they were asking her to come and pick her up. And so she called me on her way and said, would you pray for me? I'm four minutes away from the school. This and this is what happened. happened. Will you pray for me um, as I walk into that situation? I have counseled with this couple extensively. Uh, They are good friends. I know them well. And I said, you bet. I said, and I will not only pray for you when you get there in five minutes, I will pray right now. So you keep driving, you keep your eyes open, I will close my eyes and I will pray. And knowing that circumstance, I prayed in a very particular way and I prayed because this woman is prone to be black and white, sharp-tongued, critical. I prayed that God would use his grace to pour through her life, that she would be kind and gentle and gracious with her words. Those are all biblical kinds of admonitions. I can give you scripture references for that. But I knew that woman. I knew the situation. I knew how to pray. She told me last week, she said, I don't know if you remember, but remember when I called and asked you to pray for me? She said, that prayer has changed my life. I remember what you prayed. And she said, Terry, I went in that office and I was a different woman. And God has continued to use that prayer. And, and that prayer, every time I'm interacting with my granddaughter, that prayer is resonating in my mind. Friends, that is, that is what 
it means to admonish someone with the word. And, and we are all equipped to do that. We are, we are all equipped to do that. We are all compelled and challenged to do that. We all, when we speak, we are to speak as if we are speaking the utterances of God. Listen, we have nothing to say in and of ourselves unless it comes from this book. I have no counsel to give. I have no encouragement to give. I have no hope to give unless I give it from this book. I can't tell someone, your God will heal your daughter of that cancer. I don't know that. But, but I do know that God can see you through if your child has cancer. God can sustain you. God, God can use that in your life. And so we want to use the scriptures to minister to, the, to those who are in need. When I, when I was in seminary, I was trained in the Rogerian model of counseling. And so the Rogerian model of counseling kind of works like this. Someone walks into your office and they sit down and they say, I have a problem. And you nod your head and you go, oh, you have a problem. Yeah, it's really bad. Oh, it's really bad. Yeah, it's with my wife. Oh, it's with your wife. Yeah, we don't communicate very well. Really, you don't communicate very well. And you're just you're reflecting back for an hour. And then you say, that'll be $75, please. And I'll see you next week, same time. And it, I'm, not, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I figured out pretty quickly, this is not helping my people. And so the seminary I went to had one motto, and the motto was teach, preach the word, preach the word. So I, I, I only had one tool. And so I hadn't been trained this way, but I just picked up the book the next time somebody came into my office, and I said, well, um, I don't know what to say, except that I do know what God has to say about this. Let's, let's look and see what God has to say. And, and that is... That is our model. That's our hope. That, that's, that's the way we want to dispense the truth. I, I love the story about Martin Luther and the Reformation. Somebody asked him after the Reformation was largely complete how it came about. Listen to what he said. He said, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then, while I slept, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing. The word did it all, for it is mighty, and it takes captive the hearts, and if the hearts are captured, the evil work will fall of itself. I did nothing. The word did its work. And friend, when you are ministering to others, use the word to minister to them. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Only it can reach into the soul of a man, kill him, and bring him to life and to form him into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Use that word when you're ministering to others and let it do its work. There is a fourth mark of an effective personal ministry Notice next, verse 11, depend on God's strength for your ministry. Depend on God's strength for your ministry. Whoever serves, he says in the middle of the verse, is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. Now, now here the Apostle Peter is talking about those serving gifts. He's, he's talking about 
about gifts like uh, faith and giving and administration and showing mercy and helps. But, but even as I was thinking about those gifts this week, isn't it true that most of those are also accompanied by words? If you want to come alongside and help someone, you don't, you don't just show up with a meal and are mute. You give the meal and you dispense words with the meal. If you, if you go to, to mow the lawn of an elderly person that lives next to you, you don't just show up and mow the lawn and say nothing, but you administer words to that person. So all, all of these gifts are oriented around speaking, even when they're primarily serving kinds of gifts. And notice, how do we serve? He says we do it by the strength which God supplies It means that you are not capable for doing this, but God working through you is. And and you work in dependence on Him. You work in reliance on Him. You work and you serve and you minister in such a way that it makes clear that this is not coming from you. It's coming from Him. Listen to what the Apostle says. Paul said in Acts chapter 17 on Mars Hill, he says, The God who made the world and all things in it, since He is the Lord of heaven and earth, He does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. God is the one who gives all things. And He doesn't want our service to make it look like He is dependent on us. He wants our service to look like we are dependent on Him. And we communicate that we are dependent on Him when the primary way we serve is rooted in this book and by the power and authority of this book. John Piper has written well. He says, when we are at our most active for God, we are still recipients. So let us work hard but never forget that it is not us, but the grace of God that is with us. Let us spread the gospel far and wide and spend ourselves for the sake of the elect, but never venture to speak of anything except what Christ has worked in us in all our serving. May God be the giver and may God get the glory. And that leads us to the last mark of an effective personal ministry is given to us at the end of verse 11. And it is to seek God's glory in your personal ministry. Seek God's glory. This is not for the edification or this is not for the exaltation of man. This is for the exaltation of Christ. Notice what the apostle says, so that in all things, in other words, in all the various ways that your gifts are used, however you have been gifted, whatever the measure of your gift And wherever that gift is being used, he says, in all those ways that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, so that God gets the glory. Now, we talk about the glory of God. What what does Peter mean when he says, you are to glorify God in the way you give and use your gifts? The most basic sense of the word glory, or to glorify, is it means to reveal something. So when we glorify God by our gifts, we mean that we are revealing by the use of our gifts the true nature and character of God. So that others look at us and they say, that's what 
That's what God must be like. That's what Christ must be like. I see God in that person's actions. But it's not just, it's not just that God is revealed. It is also that God is enjoyed. So that, so that we glorify God when we enjoy Him for whom He is. We, we delight in Him and delight in the treasure of who He is. It all points to Him. One writer has told the, uh, an, a part of an account of the life of uh, Charles Lindbergh. He writes this, unless, he's, unless, he says, you're an airplane buff, Charles Lawrence probably isn't a name you recognize. But Charles Lawrence is credited with developing the engine for the Spirit of St. Louis, the historic aircraft Charles Lindbergh flew nonstop from Long Island to Paris in 1927. After Lindbergh's record-setting flight, friends of Lawrence held a dinner for for him in honor of his achievement. At the dinner, in response to all of the attention that was being lavished on him, Lawrence made this humble, thought-provoking comment. Quote, This is nice, and I appreciate it very much, but who ever heard of Paul Revere's horse? And the writer continues, Lawrence understood that his was a lesser role. He had merely helped provide a usable vehicle. The real work and achievement was Lindbergh's. Lindbergh had made the sacrifices. He had flown the mission. And friends, that that is us. When we serve and when we apply the word of God, it's not about us. It's not about what we say. It's about the power and the authority and the work of the spirit of God working through us by his word. I want you to notice one final thing as we wrap this up. And I want, you to, I want you to recognize the context in which Peter is writing these words. Peter sets the tone for the letter right in the very first verse of the letter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen, etc. He's writing to a church that is dispersed. Why are they dispersed? They aren't dispersed because they got a better job offer. They are dispersed because they've been persecuted for the faith. And this whole letter is about how you survive and how you endure when you are suffering. In fact, just notice the very next verse after the verse that we are looking at. Verse 11. Now, look down to verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal which among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. You're suffering. And oh friend, it is not strange and it is not unusual. And, and the apostle Peter wants us to know that, that this ministry of the word is for all times, in all circumstances. This isn't isn't the best-case scenario. This is what works in a worst-case scenario. How are you going to minister, and how are you going to serve, and what are you going to do in the worst of circumstances? You are going to serve with the Word of God and take that Word and speak it into another's life. Oh, my friend, you are a servant, and you are a minister for God. 
The question simply is, what kind of servant are you? So let me give you five questions that will evaluate the marks of your maturity and service. Do you have a gift? By that I mean, are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Because if you're a believer, you've been given that gift. Do you have a gift? Number two, are you using that gift? Three, are you speaking God's word? Four, are you serving as one who is dependent on God? And five, are you seeking God's glory above all? Do you need help for these things? Yes, you do. And I know you do because I do. I need help. Your pastor needs help. Your elders need help. You need help. Where are you going to get some help? Let me just give you two practical suggestions. One is I've already alluded to the book by Paul Tripp, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hand. He takes 300 pages to flesh out what I've tried to say in 45 minutes and, and show you how to minister the Word of God in the lives of the people whom God has connected you to. And then, and then secondly, let me plug our Biblical Counseling and Discipleship Conference. This is about training people to minister the Word of God in the worst of circumstances. And why do we, why do we want people to do that? Because, friends, we live in a world of hurting and needy people And God has given us the gifts that we need to serve them, to help them with this word so that they can be changed and live for the glory of God. Our Father, we thank you for the reminder of this word. We've gone far too fast through these verses. We have left far too much unsaid. But I trust that this will be a small encouragement to us as to reminding us of what your word can do, what your word is authoritative to do, what your word is effective to do, both in us and those whom we serve. And so, Father, as we, as we finish looking at this passage this morning, as we prepare to take the elements of communion, and then as we leave here to go and serve a needy world, would you make us cognizant of your provision for us by this word and how we might use this word to minister to others so that they can be helped not by our utterances, but by the utterances of God. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.